Greetings, troubled listeners, and welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Komen, sitting in my safe house, on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times, and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, man. How are you? I'm good, Manny. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing all right, man. You know, considering everything, uh, I feel okay. Uh, uh, everything, you know, uh, things are getting back to normal. Yes, uh, yes. You know, you know. I had a, I had a, I was hanging out with a former guest, Glenn Styler, the other day, and uh, we were we were talking. He was saying that we were saying, you know, things have really been improving lately. We're almost back to being miserable again. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's a very good way to put put it. Because I, in fact, I realized a lot of that today when I had to uh, from my job. I had to go. Uh, pick up my daughter from her job and I realized man you know just three months ago this would have taken me 10 minutes yeah now it's taken me like almost an hour to do this right and uh, then I said I thought to myself well I guess it's getting back to normal you know and uh, you know and and it is getting back to normal because they announced today uh, a jazz fest will be back in October and they've already announced all the all the bands and stuff like that and you know they I saw it on the news they were they were making such a big hoopla about it but you know I live in Jazz Fest neighborhood and to me it's like okay great they said oh we're, we're expecting you know 500,000 people in the two weeks well it's like you know I, I live like 6 blocks away right so they're, means, all, they're all going to park on your lawn yeah they're all going to park on my lawn or walk through my you know, through my street and all that kind of stuff and and they're all going to want to talk <laughs> you know, they all don't want to talk to you. You know, it's it's the weirdest thing. You know, it's crazy going nuts. It's like I don't want to talk to you. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you're doing. You know, just, just keep moving. You know, like you know, follow the yellow line, man. Just keep moving. Yeah, yeah. The, the chit chat can be a bit much with. Uh, but it will be interesting because it will be in October, which is, um, you know, you always have a crazy maybe storm come through, a maybe a tropical storm or a Cat One. Right. In October, there's always that fear of that, you know. Sure, you know. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, and, that'd be uh, a bad scene, man. If uh, had all those would, people in town and uh, have, have something like that come through. Yeah, and I saw uh, uh, on the news today, uh, uh, Mr. Davis, Quint Davis. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, he's going. We're not just doing it half-assed, man. We're going a hundred percent, baby. That's what he was. You know, he's he was trying to get you know get all energized about it, right? And, and the reporters just looked at him. But anyway, you know, he, he's a good guy, you know. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta gotta hand it to him, man. It's uh, you know, Quint doesn't get enough credit. You know, it's uh, you know, we we know him as the jazz fest guy, but really, you know, go, going way back, he was Professor Longhair's uh, manager. You know, uh, driving around the country w- with him in Uganda and the station wagon. They were driving in Uganda. Well, well, Uganda Roberts was, was oh, in, in the okay. car with him, our former guest. Oh, I thought he did the country of Uganda. Well, no, no, I don't. Well, I'm not sure if they made it that far I, 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 not not in the station wagon anyway but uh but but yeah you know quinn has a, a long history in in new orleans uh, r&b and and uh, b- before he even started the jazz fest so yes he's, he's uh, right so you know it's something i guess for people to look forward to we shall see what happens you know uh other than that uh we just had a father's day this past weekend right and I know that's a big day for you because you keep wanting your father's love. Yes. And um, <laughs> it never seems to happen every Father's Day. 
Yeah, well, it's it's. it's so how did it go? Because this time you were in town. So yes, did... this time I was in town, so I, I was able to un to avoid that uh, that that conversation, which is always uncomfortable for him, where he knows at the end I'm going to tell him that I love him, and he's going to have to tell me thank you. Um, <laughs> so so since we were thank in, you, please come again. Right, come. right, right. Yeah. Uh, or very good, something like yeah. that. You know, something just uh, mildly uh, uh, acknowledging. Um, but so he was here and, uh, you know, so it's, it was all like all the rest of our, our encounters now, which are very pleasant. You know, uh, we have a fine relationship. He's just not t- uh, terribly demonstrative, uh, verbally demonstrative person in, in, in that way. You know, he's spent a lot of time with me as a, as a child. Now, most of it was me, was me uh, carrying the, the tools and, and uh, getting yelled at for bringing the wrong tool. But, but uh, you know, it was, it was quality time nonetheless. But okay, so good. You had a good time, yeah. Yeah, well, and we had the whole family over. Now, now, how was your Father's Day? Did did your uh, your wife and child acknowledge you properly? Well, here's the thing about my Father's Day is is that uh, my wife, the woman who had this baby, claims mm-hmm. that I'm the father. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I I just have to go with it. I say, okay, sure, yeah, I'm the father, and. Uh, and uh, my child, I think I sent you, you know, she's getting older. She's a, a 16-year-old. She's getting right. her license tomorrow, in fact. Oh, okay. And, she uh, looks a lot like you, Manny. It's, uh, I'd say, you know, she, it's, it would be hard to deny paternity to, uh, you know, to the Have girl. you seen her lately, though? Uh, no, I haven't. She's, she's got, like, some fucking uh, uh, thing through her nose. And okay. Got, Tat- uh, any tattoos yet? No, no tattoos yet. Okay, She's got right. uh, uh, some good. crazy hair color. But anyway, I think I, I sent it to you. You know, this is—I don't know where she gets this from, but you know, oh yes, oh your Father's Day present. Yes, you did. Yeah, that was, that the was Father's sweet. Day present was a a, a cast of her, uh, a clay cast or a plaster repair cast of her hand giving me the middle finger. Uh huh. <laughs> and, and it says on each finger it spells out L O. You know, L O V E U, love you. Uh-huh. So I guess she loves me in some way, even though she gave me the middle finger. Well, she so, she inherited your sense of humor, Manny. I guess so. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, you know I don't know where she gets it from because you know, I'm not that way. I'm not that way at all. I'm a nice guy. <laughs> you are a nice guy, Manny. <laughs> you know. So uh, we we sh- I said it. You should post it on our Facebook page or our fan page. Okay. What, yeah. Yeah. That's that that's that, that sounds you good. See, you know how troubled I am. You know. But other than that, uh, it's been a, a pretty uh, good week, uh, pretty boring, you know. Uh, I haven't done much. Uh, my, my wife did make me one of my favorite dishes for Father's Day, and she's become an expert at making it. It's a Mexican dish called chili calarado, which is a, a spicy uh, broth, uh, red sauce kind of broth with, uh, hmm. with chunks of meat. And you can add some, you know, Mexican cheese to it. And I tell you, man, you eat it and, and like halfway through the bowl, you just start sweating. You know, you just yeah. start sweating, man. And she's perfected it just the way, uh, you know, I remember it, you know. So you, know, you got to give it to her, you know, being an Irish-German girl that nice. she is. So that was good. And um, other than that, the only thing uh, I really want to talk about is remember how uh, – 
you took acid before in your life, or LSD and stuff like that, right? Uh, I, I think I did, yes. Yeah, yeah. As far yeah. as I can recall, yeah, I think that, right. was, that actually well, happened. Well, I remember um, taking acid a few times as uh, in high school and then maybe a, a couple times as a young adult. And um, I never, you know, they always said you're going to get a flashback, mm-hmm. you know? And I didn't get one until like yesterday. Really? I had an acid flashback yesterday. So I guess it was worth the money, you know. So uh, huh. I had an acid flashback, and it was a you lot sh- of fun. You sure it wasn't just a stroke, Manny? Because, <laughs> I mean, it might be hard to tell the difference at this point. Well, a stroke doesn't like the side of, you know, some one side of your body starts stiffening up and, and you get all chest pains. I don't, I don't know what a stroke is. Yeah, I think that you could have a variety of symptoms from them. But anyway, well, go I, ahead with your uh, I just It was a flashback, and, and I remember I was, uh, it, it was weird because I started laughing hysterically, and uh, uh, I, I thought I was uh, back in Las Vegas, you know, uh, pl- playing blackjack and, and laughing hysterically and nodding off and laughing and nodding off. But, you know, it was weird. It, it was weird. So it finally happened, I think, after like 28 years. It finally happened. The flashback came back, well, which I'm glad because I'm glad it's over and done with. I don't want to deal with that again. I'm too old. Oh, you think it. you only get one? Like, uh, Well, maybe. let's hope. Let's hope because they, they don't call it acid flashbacks. They well, call it flashback. Mm, I think so, sometimes they do. It depends on. <laughs> I'm not sure that you're done with that. Uh, but well, uh, we'll see. Maybe by the end of this show. Yeah, uh, very possibly. Uh, that could. Yeah. Uh, well, you know. Well, you'll have to keep the the troubled nation apprised of your. Oh, uh, I will. Oh, I'm I sure will. you will. <laughs> I will. Um, other than that, uh, the only thing I saw that was interesting to me in the news was that. Um, remember, like during the the. the start of this pandemic or the peak of like last summer i mean the whole world was going nuts and stuff like that i think i remember telling you about how in the philippines uh the president the dictator there the president whatever you want to call him was uh making people who refused to wear a mask in the philippines he was making them uh dig the graves Mm. remember that remember i do yeah i do remember yeah okay so all these anti-maskers, he was making them, you know, bury the, the graves for the dead of mm-hmm. COVID-19. And now I just heard just a couple of days ago that that same president who, um, who did that a year ago is now uh, anyone who's an anti-vaxxer in the Philippines, he's sending to prison. Oh, jeez. He's just putting them in jail. So... Stay away from the Philippines is the way yeah, I look at it. Yeah, that guy's a nut, man, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he's a... Yeah, I forget his name and anything like that. I, I remember yeah. the Philippines had a leader who had a lot of shoes. Yeah, yeah, Marcos. 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 I think that guy's yeah. name might be like Duarte or something like that. Uh, right, you know, just, just stay away from the Philippines nation. There's yeah, nothing yeah. good going to happen there. Even if you're wearing a mask or if you're vaccinated, I'm sure they're going to find some something... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. it's a bad scene over there. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, uh, is that about wrap it up for the uh, for the, the housekeeping? Yeah, I guess so. Except I had one more thing. Oh, um, yeah. You know, um, have you ever? Uh, you know, you get around people, you have relationships. You know, you have friends and family. Has anyone uh, ever been insulted that 
that you offended their pet? Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I may have on occasion been a little bit uh, dismissive of someone's pet, yeah, that they took offense to. Yeah, I could see that. Because just uh, a few weeks ago, there was uh, some family and friends in town, and someone brought their dog all the way from, like, I don't know what state they came from. And I happened to be there, and, and I just said, uh, and I didn't know this person's uh, wife. I didn't know the first time meeting the wife, and I... And I just said, they brought this dog, and, and this dog was just, I don't know what kind of fucking dog it was, but it was just freaky looking to me. You know, I don't know if it's some rare breed of dog or whatever, but I just said, man, that is one freaky looking dog. <laughs> and, and, you know, within like 20, 30 minutes, it just, the shit hit the fan, and it was, I had to apologize. It was like, well, it was a freaky looking dog. I, you know, I'm just being honest. Right. You know, it looked like a half poodle, half German shepherd. I don't know what the fuck it looked like, but it it just and it had really weird eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, know. that happens sometimes with people's kids. You know, there <laughs> yeah. there are certain certain syndromes that aren't even named. You know, because they're so rare. And uh, I've I've heard that uh, pediatricians will will use uh, if if just when they're doing like a well baby visit or something they'll use this abbreviation FLK stands for funny looking kid uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but well, this know, is an FLD then I guess okay a freaky, yeah, funny, there you a go. freaky looking dog there not a go. funny but not a freaky looking dog right right but you know whatever I'm sure they'll get over it yeah sure they know uh, it. they know it deep down that's why they were reacting harshly because they know it's true you know I think a, so too yeah, I yeah. think so too I think they know that you know we've got this dog that they love and they spoil rotten and you know, they probably don't have kids or whatever, like that kind of stuff. So yeah. they, 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 no accounting for taste, you know. I'm a, it's right. A, you, know. You, know, it, you know, everyone's different. But listen, sure. let's let's get. I'm excited about our guest. Yes. Let's get to our guest. He's yes. been very quiet. He very has been quiet. very quiet. I'm surprised because uh, he's he's usually pretty loquacious, but maybe he's he's uh, saving it all up for uh, for post introduction here. Um, uh, I hope he's still there. Actually, after the um, <laughs> he, he might have uh, might have taken a taken his leave. Well, anyway, uh, I don't want to ruin your magic. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, we can do that all by ourselves. Um, okay. So our our our, our guest is a, a fantastic guest. We've we've thought about having him on for a long time. He's a he's a Grammy award winning songwriter, singer, guitar player record producer, author. He's a founding member of the Roots Rock Legends, the Blasters. Um, uh, we could go on and on. He's had a terrific solo career, and, and uh, we'll, we'll get into all that. But uh, without further ado, the great Mr. Dave Alvin. Welcome, Dave. Well, it's great to be here, you troubled gentlemen. <laughs> well, again, let's not get carried away. Tr troubled men, yeah, yeah. Hope you know, I had uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a pedal steel player, uh, always refers to, you know, you're playing a gig, right? And uh, oftentimes there'll be, you know, interesting people in front of you and and maybe, a, you know, an attractive uh, woman or two and, and uh, some old pals and, you know, you're having a ball and you're feeding off the audience and you have great gigs. Well, this friend of mine who, he's a guitar player, pedal steel player, you know, plays a variety of string instruments, but he always says that when he's playing pedal steel, the only people that get in front of him and stare are troubled loners. 
<laughs> and I started watching, you know, and yeah, he was right. Yeah. And I'd walk by him and say, you got the troubled loners again tonight. And he'd say, yeah, got the troubled loners. Uh, so how many loners are these? Is this like depending on the size of the venue or is it just like always the same amount of loners? And you'd usually have five to ten troubled loners in front of his pedal <laughs> Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot, man. You yeah. know, uh, there there's certain bands that uh, that I've I played in, or or you know, when I think about going to see them, I can picture the crowd, and and my shorthand for it is like uh, guys in army jackets with no girlfriends, um, <laughs> and. And, you know, there's certain, like, guitar hero kind of uh, acts that uh, I could just predict, yeah, that's going to be a room full of guys in army jackets with no girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> and I never wanted to play in a band like that because uh, it's, it's, it's tough going, man. Yeah, one of the weirder tours I ever did was uh, a million years ago, like in the early 90s. I did this weird tour. I had done a tour... I had the same booking agent as Richard Thompson. Okay. And so he and I did a bunch of acoustic shows together, and, that, and it was great. And then this booking agent thought, well, one of my other acts is Adrian Ballou, the experimental guitar player. Yep, that's going to be one. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he, um, he wanted to do an acoustic tour, and, and so we had the same booking agent. My booking agent at the time thought, well, let's put Dave. He did so well with Richard Thompson. Let's put him with Adrian Ballou. And uh, yeah, it did not work. You walk out, and yeah, it was a, it was a club full of troubled loners. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember distinctly the very first gig um, was at the Paradise in Boston, and I walked out on stage, and you know, Adrian's a magnificent musician and, oh, yeah. and, a, and a wonderful guy, but we sort of have different musical and, and visual looks, and so I walk out on stage. And one of the troubled loners pressed up against the stage at the Paradise, turns to his pal and says, oh, God, I bet the first song is going to be about Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and the sad thing was he was right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and actually, I only did about I lasted about five gigs of that tour. And I called the booking agent and I just said, and then this ain't working out, you know, there's, it's me against the guitar geebs out there and, you know, um, yeah. So yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You can, after a while you can, you can just pick them. You could go down a, like a, you know, a Tipitina's calendar and go, yep, that's going to be one right there. That's going <laughs> to, <laughs> well, Dave, let's, let's get back to, to, uh, your career. So you're, you're from, uh, uh, Downey, California, which, uh, is also, uh, where the carpenters were from. So were you super into the carpenters when you were a kid? Uh, oh, you bet. <laughs> I, I actually do really love the Carpenters, uh, but uh, I kind of say that facetiously. I'm, I'm sure they're they're hometown heroes uh, of a sort. Well, you know, I have to admit, you know, when I was a teenager, you know, I was so into blues and rhythm and blues and, and jazz and stuff um, that I and, and, you know, and rock and roll. Sure. That, no, I did not like them at all. I sure. hated them. Yeah, and, I could um, uh, I could see that. Yeah. You know, and, and all the local kids hated them because it yeah. was like, uh, you know, it's not like, uh, hey, you know, the Beatles are from our hometown. Hey, the Stones are from our hometown. Hey, the Carpenters are from our hometown. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I even they even with their with their money that they had made, they they built a couple of apartment buildings in Downey, 
and uh, and this and the, and the apartment buildings had these huge wooden signs out in front, and one was called uh, one apartment building was called "We've Only Just Begun," mm. and the other apartment building was called "Close to You," and uh, and the, the, the had musical scales, you know, musical notes on the on the mm-hmm. big sign, and the, these signs were about you know four four foot by you know four foot by five you know and they would hang in front of the apartment building and uh you know so me and my pals got drunk one night you know statute of limitations has expired since the early 70s sure and uh yeah so we went and stole the close to you sign off the thing you know we were you know we were just embarrassed you know to to be you know there was a local surf instrumental band called the rumblers back in the early 60s who were badass sort of they weren't even really a surf band. They were an instrumental white R&B band, guitar, mm-hmm. you know, guitar and sax driven. And I always felt kinship with the Rumblers. But after saying all that, I have to say that uh, as an adult, um, I really have come not to appreciate so much their records and all that, but to appreciate her voice. Yes, yes. And to appreciate... Um, you know, and I, you know, I would have loved to have gotten her out of that cocoon. Right. You know? um, and, you know, the aesthetic cocoon. Right. And did you, did you know, Dave, that right next door to those apartments was a Karen Carpenter diet shop? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but uh, but uh, uh, well, you grew up there, you would know. But listen, you're from Downey. Where'd you go to high school? Kind of that one too. <laughs> Where'd you go to high school in Downey? St. Pius the Tenth. Oh, okay. Because you know, uh, I went to West Side High School, uh, Uni High, but uh, as the punk rock thing, and I started getting into the punk rock thing, I, I had to get a leather jacket. And yeah. I went, to, I went to some army surplus store in Downey uh-huh. to get my first leather jacket. Congratulations. And, and the guy at the surplus store, he was just like, this is the finest leather jacket you're going to get, son. And he told me how to take care of it. He told me how to, you know, uh, get it like a catcher's mitt, you know, break it in and stuff like that. And uh, I had no idea if that place is still there today, but it cost me that. Back then, that it was like 1979, 80. That jacket cost me like $80. Mm. Yeah. Who, who knows how much it costs now, but. Yeah, yeah, that's my that's my real memory of Downey. I didn't spend too much time in Downey. Well, you you West Side guys didn't. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> you know. well, I was on the I was on the Venice Boardwalk a lot, or as I moved out of the house, I stumbled into Hollywood quite often and stuff like that. Hustling your good. ass, yeah, 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 hustling my you know under the uh, L.A. Bridge, you know. Sure. Yeah, you know, my brother never forgave me. And this is sort of true. He may have forgiven me by now, but, you know, as soon as, you know, we blasters started making some money because we'd all been working day jobs and shit. And um, back in the early days, you know, when we were just getting started, right. as soon as we started making money, me and the drummer moved up to, yeah, we moved up to uh, Hollywood, you know, and my bro- and I've never gone back, you know. Because wherever I am, I'm a downy. That's just that's just the case. Uh-huh. My brother's never forgiven me from for moving uh, west of the Harbor Freeway. <laughs> my brother is my brother is a you know you can move to Long Beach, but you can't move to the West Side. You know, right? Well, right. I still lived. I was on the West Side, but I was still east of the uh, 405. 
So I didn't really consider myself a beach guy, but I did go to the beach a lot and hang out and stuff like that. Trying to find the sweet spot there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I understand. So your first apartment in Hollywood, where was that at? Was it off a fountain somewhere? No, it was actually, uh, it was actually really nice. It was on uh, uh, three blocks east of La Brea on a street called Mansfield. Sure. About three yeah. blocks south of Melrose. Oh, that's a sweet spot. Yeah, I was. We had great landlords that uh, I lived there for about five years. And, and uh, yeah, it was and that, that was the heyday of that neighborhood, too. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of shit going on. You had Melrose Avenue, which was exploding. And then you were so close to everything. Yeah, I like so that. It. Yeah, that was a sweet spot to be in. Yeah. And we were on Slash Records. Uh, or let me rephrase that. We were getting robbed by Slash Records. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now, who wasn't back then? Yeah. And, uh, and they were only a few blocks away. And so that was a, that was a great, you know, it was a great place to hang, you know? Well, Dave, let's, uh, let's back up a little bit and tell us about, uh, like how you started playing guitar and Downey. What, uh, was there some, some mythic story of a yard man teaching you the forms or, uh, how did, how did that all go down? You and Phil there? Uh, well, Phil and I learned differently, you know, uh, the, the main first musical influences we had were our older cousins. And we had a cousin, Donna, who was uh, the eldest of our cousins. And she she was a 50s rock and roll teenager. Uh, mm. She was from a little town called Bell, which is uh, uh, right next to Bell Gardens, which is just west of Downey. And uh, and she, yeah, she, she was, uh, she'd give us all her old rhythm and blues and rockabilly and rock and roll records when she was tired of them. You know, she'd play them out and then she'd hand them to us. Mm-hmm. So at a very early age, we had, you know, Big Joe Turner and Ray Charles and, you know, uh, a couple of Sun Records and Eddie Cochran stuff, you know, Jerry Lee kind of things, Ricky Nelson, you know, that kind of. And then, um, you know, and a lot of doo-wop. She loved, doo- you know, West Coast doo-wop, you know, the Medallions and, you know, um, the, the Jacks and things like that, groups like that. Um, Do you still have those records? Yes, sir. Wow. Oh, that's great. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. The ones that haven't been stolen. And uh, Do you still have that cousin? No, she's she's passed away, sadly. Uh, oh, sorry. And, uh, yeah, she was the one that, you know, taught us how to make fart sounds with our arms and, <laughs> and uh, you know, how to hold a cigarette correctly, you know, when, when I was like six, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Never too early to learn. Never too early. And, but then we had a, another of our older cousins was a guy named Mike Keller, who is still with us, thankfully, and wonder, doing wonderfully. And he was a folky. And he was into, uh, you know, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Dave Van Rock, uh, Pete Seeger, early Bob Dylan. And so he played banjo and guitar. And then I had a cousin, uh, uh, JJ, who lived, grew up on a, on a ranch back when there were ranches out in the West San Fernando Valley. And uh, he grew up, uh, and his, uh, out there where his influences were like, you know, Buck Owens and people like that, you know, George Jones. And uh, so family gatherings, you know, were, were sort of like my records. Sounds so great, man. Like, what a great cross-section of material. Holy cow, man. There's not a loser in the bunch. Yeah, you know, I never, I never really, I never, I mean, I understand genres of music. 
and I understand the difference between Texas blues and Chicago blues. I know the difference between West Coast jazz and East Coast jazz. I know the difference between Kansas City jazz and New Orleans jazz. Mm-hmm. I know all that stuff. You know, I understand the difference between West Coast country and Nashville country, and right. you know what's a Texas shuffle and what's a you know what's a I don't know. Yeah, Chicago shuffle, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. I know all the right. difference between those things. But I'm also not a genre guy in that, you know, I, I'm really a blues guy is what I am. Um, but uh, as a songwriter, I don't want to be limited to genres. And as a fan of music, I don't want to be limited to genres. And as, when you're a kid, you don't know, you know, you don't, like I remember hearing on the radio, AM radio when I was a kid, you'd hear Sam Cooke followed by the Beatles, followed by Buck Owens, yeah. you know, followed by uh, Dusty Springfield. Was that on KRLA or KHJ? Uh, either. Yeah. Yeah, either. KRLA was my station. I love that. And my mom used to play it constantly because of the the mix. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a great DJ on KRLA back in, like, around starting around 68 through 69. It was a guy named Jimmy Rabbit who just recently passed away. And I got a lot of my musical education from him because – he had the nighttime slot and he was from somewhere up outside the Dallas area in Texas. And so he would play lightning Hopkins and the Staples singers followed by, you know, Graham Parsons and the flying burrito brothers and the Dillard and Clark, you know, band and, uh, and then play, you know, Bob Dylan and follow it by the Sir Douglas quintet, follow it by, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, Howlin' Wolf or, or, you know, Kenny Burrell, you know, yeah. It was AM radio, and uh, and so I'd lay awake at night with my, you know, as as Rod Hodges and my song about nine volt heart goes. I'd have my little transistor radio, and I'd be listening to Jimmy Rabbit, letting it all soak in. You know, he'd play Fred Neal. You know, where else? Where were we going to hear Fred Neal on AM radio? Right. Uh, and uh, so yeah, I just soaked all that stuff in. And as far as being a guitar player, uh, I, I I came late to the game because Downey for whatever reason, had a, had a large variety of great guitar players. Um, you know, these are older guys, of course. And, um, um, if you wanted to get invited to the jam sessions, guitar was the last thing you wanted to play because there were guys that could play, you know, there's one guy, Gary Massey, that could play, he could play like two guys. He could play like T-Bone Walker and Jimmy Reed. And really that was it. That was his deal. Uh-huh. And then there was a guy, but he did it like nobody he did it as good as almost as good as T-Bone or, or Jimmy Reed. And uh, then there was a guy named Mike Roach who could play anything. He could play Bach. He could play outer space, you know, jazz. He could play anything. Um, and uh, so there's all these great guitar players. So if you wanted to get invited to a jam session to hang out with the older guys and look at girls, you had to play something else. And uh, I had no interest in being a bass player, so I played saxophone and flute. Oh. So I got invited to the jam sessions. And uh, but I what I would do, you know, was my brother always had a blues band. He started having blues bands when he was about thirteen. Wow! And uh, so when they'd go take a break to get hamburgers or go smoke cigarettes, I'd run in. I'd, I mean, I'd be staring at the guitar players. And then they'd leave and I'd grab their guitar and try to figure out how, how did they do that? You know, how, where does that magic come from? And so it wasn't, I didn't really start playing guitar until I was not even semi-seriously, but until I was around 17. 
Wow, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So when you played the flute, did you score with the chicks? Yeah. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) It can be done. It can be done, Manny. Dave, just going back to KRLA for just a second. I I remember back in the 70s when I was a teenager, and my mom would be playing it. On uh, on Friday nights, for some reason, KRLA used to play all the cholo music. You know, that was, it was Cholo night where all the low riders would listen to like, you know, stuff from the fifties and sixties. And and that was so uh, entertaining at the same time, very hilarious because you had 17 year old Cholos listening to like, you know, fifties stuff. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, It was very hilarious. Well, it was, it was, uh, it's still kind of like that, but not really, you know, hip hop has taken over everything. Oh yeah, I know. But uh, there's still a little bit of that. You know, you still see the cars with Earth Angel stenciled on the side yeah. window. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or, or, or you know, you're mine and we belong together. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like, Love all stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that shit'll never die, man. Yeah, we well, got all those great groups. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, had all those great. You know. Uh, you know the uh, the the Midnighters and uh, Little Julian Herrera and all those cats up. East LA, you know, working all the way, you know, really till now, you know, the brothers who later had Tierra, everything, you know, so that was always part of the scene that that kind of music that sort of rhythm blues, you know. Right. Well, so Dave, you know, I see pictures of, of, of you and Phil from your childhood, you know, these black and white pictures, like y'all on a pony or something, you know, you got your checkered shirts on. It looks so idyllic, you know, and it, it looks like from another time. Now I know your father was, was like a, a labor organizer. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. So, so you come from a, a, a proud uh, organized labor background. Like, uh, you know, I, I love yes, that. Sir. I love that. And, and I'm sure that uh, largely informed your your worldview, you know the 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 that hardworking, uh, you know, resolute yet somewhat optimistic, uh, square jawed. I don't know. How do you think? How do you feel about that? Well, yeah, uh, my old man. Uh, I'm I'm a mixed marriage, you know. My old man was a Polish Catholic, and uh, he he was born to immigrant parents in South Bend, Indiana. His first language was Polish. My old man could speak uh, uh, German, Czech, you know, just because of the neighborhood he grew up in. Um, He could even speak touches of Hungarian and Russian. And uh, in the his first language, like I said, was Polish, and you know, his second language was English. And you know, because of the insular nature of of those Rust Belt cities in those days, at the in the you know, my dad was born in nineteen sixteen, and. and then, you know, he came out to California. He rode the rails out in the Depression. You know, he was one of those guys. Okay. And uh, while my mom's family was, you know, I'm a fifth-generation Californian on my mom's side of the family. Hmm. So we go, my mom's family goes way, way back. And they, they of course, were, they were, of course, were Protestant. So, you know, like I said, I'm a mixed product of a mixed marriage, man, you know. Right. So not quite oaky experience, but similar kind of a uh, uh, new transplant uh, experience. Uh, well, it was oaky enough to come out on the ride the rails. Right. That's what I mean. It's a, not not from legitimately Oklahoma, but close enough. Yeah. Very, yeah, very similar experience. You know, I, I think as many people came from Arkansas and uh, Missouri as Okies, they, they just all got lumped in as being Okies. Right, yeah. right. 
And, and your mom was from Downey? They met in Downey, or what, how did that? No, no, not at all. My mom came from a little town um, called Reedley, which is about uh, twenty miles south of Fresno in the San Joaquin Valley. Oh wow! Yeah. And how did how do they meet your parents? Oh man, it's a long story. Oh, well, <laughs> uh, forget it then. <laughs> My mom was a factory girl. My dad came home from the war, and, and she was cute. You know? Nice. There you go. Uh, again, this this very idyllic uh, kind of you know post war experience. Uh, that's uh, just a, as I imagined it. So so uh, you know you and Phil grow up on the the, the blues and R and B and all these great records and this great musical family. And and at what point do you do you uh, you know, start having a band together and, and, and for, you know, formulate the proto blasters or how does that go? Uh, that didn't happen until I always, I could sit in, like I said, and, and when we were teenagers, I could sit in with my brother's blues band playing. If Lee Allen, the great New Orleans sax player who, mm-hmm. no, who we knew since we were, since I was 13 and Phil was about 15, um, if Lee couldn't make the gig with Phil's Blues Band, then yeah, I could go and play sax terribly. Um, so Lee was already playing uh, in, in Phil's band at, at that point. Yeah, on, yeah. How did y'all hook up with him at, at that early age? Uh, we had already been following around. We we started Phil and I and 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 the other members of the Blasters and other friends of ours started hanging out at this club called the Ashgrove, uh, which was in uh, which was in West West Hollywood on Melrose back when Melrose was just a sleepy street of uh, auto repair shops and reupholstery shops. And, uh, and there was this nightclub called the Ashgrove that didn't have an age limit. And so we would, we would catch rides somehow The tw- it was 22 miles to get from our house to the, to the Ashgrove. And we would beg, borrow, cajole. I don't want to use the other word, uh, <laughs> You know, because I don't know about statute of limitations, but we would get to the Ashgrove, and you know, and so you know, uh, we got to be and Big Joe Turner would be playing or T Bone Walker, Lightning Hopkins, nice, um, you know, and so we started following Big Joe Turner around from gig to gig because Big Joe and T Bone and Eddie Cleanhead Vincent and guys like that lived in L.A. and so they were playing. They'd play a gig like the Ashgrove which was a mixed crowd. It could be lawyers. It could be truck drivers. It could be white. It could be black. It was a big mixture of people. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, then they'd be doing neighborhood gigs in South central, you know, or something. And, and we'd go to those, you know, and we, we got in a lot of times just because of the nature of what are those little kids doing here? And what are those little white kids doing here? You know? right. And, uh, but also big Joe kind of took us under, under his wing. He, my brother, from the first time he saw Big Joe, my brother could imitate Big Joe Turner's voice. Yeah. And then at first it tickled Big Joe. And then, I don't know, a few months later, Big Joe said, told my brother, um, why don't you quit embarrassing yourself and embarrassing me and just learn how to sing like yourself, which my brother then figured out how to do. And although he could still sing like Big Joe Turner, like like nobody else. You know? Yeah. Uh, so anyway... And through Big Joe and this this wonderful woman named Mary Franklin, who uh, was, uh, as as my brother would say, she and T Bone they had an understanding, <laughs> um, and she started managing my brother's band, and uh, and she and Lee were friends, 
And so then Lee started, you know, like I said, I was about 13, 13 and a half, 14. Lee started, yeah, sitting in with Phil's band. And so he, as, as much as any of the other members of the Blasters, I grew up with Lee Allen, you know. Wow. Lee had left New Orleans and it, and it moved out to L.A., you know. Right. For, for anybody that doesn't know, Lee Allen, you know, is a giant of uh, New Orleans rock and roll saxophone, played, you know, all, all the Cosmo Batassa sessions, uh, you know, Fats Domino. Beautiful Fats Domino, melodic solos. That's Lee, the Little Richard, Professor Longhair stuff, Ball the Wall, that stuff. Yep. Uh, Roy Brown, Shirley Lee, come on, baby, let the good times roll. Uh, you know, Huey Piano Smith and the Clowns, that's all Lee Allen, you know. Yep, yep. A giant, a giant. It's incredible that that uh, you guys were were there with him as as teenagers. Uh, you know, growing up under that that tutelage. Greatest musical lesson I ever had. I went over to his house and and honked around, and you know, and I wanted to play both Likely Allen and John Coltrane at the same time. You know, yeah. I didn't know where I was at. And Lee, you know, he would say, he'd say, David, what you need to do is we're going to run some scales, then we're going to stop smoke cigarette, read the newspaper, then we're going to run some more scales. You know? and, and that's that's pretty much the way I practice guitar now. You know. Okay, nice, nice, nice. Well, uh, well, Dave, uh, you know, uh, we always take a little break, and Manny, I'm looking at my, at my glass. It seems like about that time. What do you think? Sure, let's do it. Uh, Trouble Nation, you know the drill. Uh, we'll be right back. Marie Marie Playing guitar Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, Mr. Dave Alvin. Now, Dave, I'm guessing that you're not familiar with uh, with this product, but uh, we have a terrific product that we've been associated with for uh, a little over a year now. It's exciting, very dynamic company. Um, Manny, why don't you tell uh, Dave all about this terrific product? Dave, I'm going to tell you about this terrific product. It's called the Velo Bar. Mm. Velo Bar, V E L. B-E-L-O bar. This is basically a protein bar, but it's got 25 milligrams of CBD per bar. 
It takes the edge off of whatever you're dealing with right now. I don't know what your vices are, what you're doing these days, you know, but CBD seems to be a healthy uh, product now that all the kids are into. And uh, right now we're promoting this Velo Bar. It's a plant-based protein bar made up of super group, super food ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, chia seeds. Everyone knows about this bar. It's a great bar to to eat after like a workout or maybe working in the yard, you know, doing some gardening or mowing the lawn or um, punching a hole through the wall, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> and right, it's a, and it could be a great breakfast bar. I mean, I like it after doing uh, uh, calisthenics. People don't do calisthenics much anymore, but I do. In prison they uh, do, but, uh, but, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm in my own prison. Sure. You know? <laughs> of yeah. course, aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I'm in my own prison right now. And that's where the Velo Bar comes in. Right. Dave, Dave, uh, uh, you see, you've been around. You've been around the block, uh, is what they say, right? You've been around, man. You've, sure. seen it, you've, you've seen it come and go. But right now, what's coming, and it's not leaving anytime soon, is the Velo Bar. The Velo Bar is taking off, man. And right now, Dave, if you go to VeloBarCBD.com and take uh, make an order, you'll get 15% off your uh, order by using the Troubled Men discount code called TroubledMen15. That's the code. And as always, there's free shipping. And Dave, it comes in two beautiful flavors, dark chocolate and peanut butter. So, Oh, my God. You know, yeah, so uh, check it out. And, and in fact, if you're, if you're interested, the uh, CEO of the company will send you uh, uh, some free samples if you're interested. And just let us know after the show, and uh, we'll set you up, man. So Troubled Nation, you know the drill. VeloBarCBD.com, 15% off by using the Troubled 1-5 promo code, free shipping. It's fabulous. And, you know, Renee, uh, I, I talked to the CEO over the weekend, over Father's Day weekend, and uh, he told me that uh, his son had just returned from the prom on Father's Day when the prom was like four days before Father's Day. Wow. He okay. just got <laughs> so his son had a good time. Chip off the old block. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Think well, so. I think so. Yeah. yeah well, I think the CEO so. was a was a, a feral hippie child, so uh, I guess you know it's, uh, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And I got a photo of the, uh, the his son and his and his prom date, and she was not. Okay, well, Manny, you're talking about a 17 year old girl, so I don't know. Well, I could still, I could still see beauty in anything. Sure, right? sure, yeah. sure, sure. You can yeah. remember the 17 year old you that would appreciate having a date like yeah, that. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. Yeah, I know, I know. Come I know. on, I, you know, come on. Where's your mind going? I know. I'm just, uh, you know, I like. Yeah, to immediately tease. just jump to conclusions about. Oh, I don't think so, Manny. <laughs> you know, you know who I am. I know, I know. You're a solid citizen, Manny. Okay, well, uh, uh, so yeah, check out the the Velo Bar and and Nation. You know, if you want to support the Trouble Men podcast directly, you can jump on that uh, that PayPal link there and the for the uh, cocktail fund. Uh, buy me and Manny a, a cocktail, or uh, even better yet, uh, get some skin in the game with by joining our our Patreon page. And, uh, you know, we seem to have plateaued on the, the Patreon membership, so uh, it's not going down, but it's, but, uh, it, it definitely has some, some upside potential. So, uh, everybody, uh, you know, avail yourself of the, of the, the, the Patreon page 
And uh, you know, again, we, we still have the uh, Troubled Men t-shirts for sale. And, uh, you know, like us on, uh, on all the social media and follow us and all that stuff. Anyway, uh, and, and if you do that, we can continue to bring you terrific guests like our great guest tonight, Mr. Dave Alvin. So, Dave, when we, when we just left you, uh, uh, you were the, the Blasters had, had formulated a four-piece band, in, in, uh, or not quite. Actually, you're under the tutelage of, of the great Lee Allen, but you're working your way up to, uh, to, to being the Blasters. And then you, so that's like 1979, the, the band coalesces, and uh, you, know, you move uh, to Hollywood. And uh, t- t- tell us in those those early days of where punk rock is, is is exploding, but then the Blasters have this tremendous, you know, rockabilly blues. Uh, uh, you know, the word Americana hadn't been invented yet, but but the a sort of uh, uh, hyped up, almost punk version of that. But you guys are coexisting with all these straight punk bands. What what was that like? Oh, it was great. It was a wonderful time to be alive in Los Angeles. You know, one of the better times to be alive in Los Angeles. Um, in the early days of, of punk rock, in the early days of that L.A. scene, you know, there were certainly cliques and there was certainly, uh, we don't like that band, they're not punk. <laughs> um, but in general, um, there was, you know, a lot of the bands did not sound alike. There was a great, uh, you know, X did not sound like the Weirdos. Um, the Weirdos uh, did not sound like uh, the Screamers. Uh, the screamers did not sound like the plugs, uh, you know, go down the list. Everybody sounded differently. Um, you know, it, they were, they were uh, that's such a great point for that period. It's such a good point. Yeah. People tend not to realize that, you know, they, yeah. and then what happened like in the early eighties, uh, was punk rock became kind of a cookie cutter thing. Mm-hmm. And the sort of people that said, well, that's not punk took over. And, uh, so if, if it didn't fit the sort of, uh, beach community thrash which is which is great stuff you know uh, but um, some of the fans took it as like that that is the only thing possible and so that that's when i lost interest in it but in the early days yeah it was great you know i mean we did gigs uh, you know with everybody x um you know again the weirdos the plugs the dickies um you know um you know did you ever play with the Minutemen? oh hell yeah yeah. Fuck yeah. You know Mike Watt, I knew D Boom. Yeah. Uh, uh, fucking they were great. great. One of the greatest bands yeah, they didn't ever. Sound any of the bands that I've mentioned. Right, exactly. You you just said that no one sounded like each other. You know, it was the Minutemen were the shit to me, man. Those yeah. guys blew me away. Yeah, yeah. One of the greatest things I ever saw was we did a benefit. Blasters played a benefit in San Pedro, uh, at a place called Dancing Waters. And it was for the uh, San Pedro Free Clinic. And this would be around 81, somewhere around in there. Mm-hmm. And um, Mike Watt had a broken leg. And um, and I was kind of bitching because I had sort of a semi-flu. And so I'm down at the gig and I'm feeling pretty terrible. And Mike Watt's got a broken leg. I mean, a newly broken leg. He's got a brand new cast on. He's, got, he's on crutches. Minutemen go out on stage. Mike Watt throws the crutches into the crowd and starts bouncing all over the stage for the <laughs> base and all that. And I'm looking, I go, well, I can't bitch about having flu-like symptoms. <laughs> right on. Yeah, Mike and yeah, I go way back with Mike. Um, 
you know, we even did a couple of poetry readings together, you know, so. Well, you know, looking at, at the, the, the whole history of all that, uh, what, what strikes me is, is the, the kind of cross-pollination that you guys had, you know, like, uh, you know, like you and John uh, Doe, you know, uh, you know, now, did you know John uh, before Axe even or, or? No, it just seemed like I did. Okay, yeah. all right, but then like you know, y'all play and like you know, the, you and John and the Flesh Eaters and the the Knitters and, and you know and you know you guys hanging out at Top Jimmy. It sounds like a it, it just feels like you know somebody who wasn't there, like a, a very intermingled scene. Like it would have been yeah. so. No, it was. It was. You know, I mean, the thing about the Blasters was each guy in the band, if you put him in a like say a straight blues band, could play in a straight blues band perfectly. You know, in those days, there was a lot of lot of bars up and down the the West Coast that were like lounge gigs, you know. But they but they had blues bands, and the the blues they played was you know sort of based off of the West Coast, the old nineteen forties, fifties West Coast style of blues. But it was you know it was white guys in general doing it, and they were all great musicians. But they played you know they played way back, you know what I mean? They they pulled the, they pulled the energy back, and uh, and you know, and any of the blasters, my brother, Johnny Baz, Bill Bateman, Gene Taylor, any of them could fit into one of those groups perfectly. But when you put them all together with me, <laughs> then things got out of hand. And then everything <laughs> became, you know, three times as fast and everything became intense. And my brother would start sweating like nobody's business. And I'd start sweating and then Bill Bateman would be bleeding all over his drum kit. You know, we, we, our idea was, um, without putting it into words, but we just knew it was, you know, we felt that when we played, the way we played blues, R&B, rockabilly, whatever, roots music, uh, was more akin to what the punk rock was than, right. say, the sort of the bands, you know, whether it was a traditional blues or a traditional country band or whatever. We just had, you know, we were like hopped up on methamphetamines, you know. I mean, right. not not literally, but musically, we were, and uh, and so you know there were certainly punk rock kids that, that hated us, you know, um, you know, and, and I still have my old Fender Mustang still has beer bottles, <laughs> you know, a beer bottle glass in its body from a, from a various buckets of blood like the cuckoo's nest down in Costa Mesa. Um, oh God, that cl- oh man, oh yeah, yeah. You, you get, I remember that place. You get so killed in that place. Yeah, I'm not exaggerating. And but on the other hand, yeah, a lot of the punk rock kids, you know, relate. You know, when we came out and played, uh, say, an old Jerry Lee song like "High School Confidential" eighteen times faster than Jerry Lee ever played, <laughs> they it was like, bah! you know, <laughs> they, they could fly through the air and spit and throw beer bottles. It's just as happy as as if they were doing it to, uh, you know, to uh, you know the Dickies. Right. And, and so, and by, by doing that, you kind of opened the door to, uh, you know, to, to uh, this, this audience for, you know, this American roots music. And, you know, we had Bill Kirchin on a few weeks ago yeah. and Bill says, hi, he says, uh, you know, I love Dave. And uh, Bill. D- during that, we talked about, about how uh, commander Cody with, with hot rod Lincoln kind of, uh, you know, s- kind of re-injected American roots music into the, the radio of the early seventies in, in, in a, in a large way, the blasters kind of did the same thing at the, the, the early eighties or, you know, end of the seventies, you know, like, like that 
music seems so vital and and you know it's uh, well thanks yeah well well dave dave let me ask you so all you guys are hitting the scene you're hitting it hard and everyone's getting signed right yeah well okay most people are getting signed certain people are getting signed yeah you know there was a a period where you know a lot of the band for example X could sell out the Whiskey A Go-Go for three nights. Yes. Or the Blasters could sell it out for two, three nights. And we, none of us could get a major label deal. Oh, and, You know, that kind of deal. And then somebody that was, say, opening a showcase, a singer-songwriter showcase at, I don't know, you know, some little club, they get some astronomical record deal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and our, they and our guys in those days did not like what was happening in L.A., and I, I never, you know, the Blasters, we kind of developed this, um, and, you know, we're talking 80, 1980, you know, 81, you know, yeah. uh, we developed this killer attitude, you know, of, you know, we were headhunters. We didn't want to be, but if you, if you provoked us, yes, we could turn it on. And there was, I remember we did a, we did a, a, a gig for this guy. We did a favor. And the favor was there was this guy who remained nameless. He was a very nice guy, very talented guy, but he, he had no following. He had no nothing. And he was sort of, he'd gotten a million dollar record deal. And that was like the big news was so-and-so got a million dollar record deal. Well, he hadn't been playing LA. He hadn't been doing anything. And so his managers called me up and asked a favor because I booked the band in those days. And they said, Could, would you guys open up for so-and-so? And I was like, ah, who is he? You know? Well, he just got a million dollar record deal, which of course I was certainly, uh, my alarms are going off. Really? <laughs> really? And you're calling me to get, you know, to have us play to get people to come to his show. <laughs> and we can't get a fucking record deal. And um, so I took the gig and, you know, I told everybody, hey, this guy, so-and-so, just got a million-dollar record deal. I don't know. He may be great. I don't know. But we're going to open for him, and we're going to kill him. And uh, that's what we did. And we didn't want to, you know. stop. left you no choice. Well, yeah, we were left no choice. It's like, okay, you, here's your million-dollar record deal, you know, and here's our record deal that we can't get in your face. Right, you know? right. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, he's a very nice guy, very talented musician, but his record, his million-dollar record deal was a one-record deal. You know, it only lasted for one record, and that one record didn't sell any copies. You know, Was that guy Bob Forrest? Uh, no. <laughs> Bob Forrest didn't come along until years later. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, okay, so you get signed, and I just remember that you're, the first album you guys came out, first or second, and that iconic uh, uh, record, uh, the vinyl, the picture. Yeah, my brother's face, yeah. Yeah, your brother's face. I mean, I saw that, and I was just like, man, this is this is hilarious, it's amazing, and it's going to sell some records. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk to Slash Records and find out. <laughs> right, right, well, uh, open the books. Yeah, yeah open, open the books, yeah. Well, but then actually, so so that record uh, gets you all signed from Slash to Warner's, which which winds up being kind of a a pipeline of for other uh, Slash bands to to wind up on Warner's. So there's a whole whole stream of people who come after you after you after the Blasters kick the gates open. Yeah, yeah, 
That's exactly right. Well, I didn't want to leave Slash, but on the other hand, um, you know, because I really liked it and I liked all the people that worked there. And um, and so, but Warner Brothers also had that thing of, you know, they had, you know, they had Ry Cooter and Randy Newman and they had, and Lenny Warnicker helped those guys make whatever record they wanted to make. And so it was like, oh man, it'd be kind of cool to be there. You know, Warner Brothers understands, you know, quote unquote, they're artists, you know. Right. And, uh, and of course, Lenny is, uh, Lenny Warnicker, who was the president of Warner's, was a great guy, is a great guy. Yeah. Um, he doesn't take my phone calls, but he's a great guy. <laughs> okay. And, uh, um, but then, yeah, but what happened after we set up our deal, which was we, we, we kept the Slash logo for 15% of our money that we gave the Slash. They got to put their logo on our records. And uh, uh. But we were basically a Warner's, Warner Brothers act. And then, but then after we signed and did that deal, then, then Slash and Warner's did a deal you know, similar to so many deals of the late 80s and 90s, you know, that came later where, where independent label signs with major label. It was like one of the first kind of deals of that sort. And so, yeah, the, the bands that came after us on Slash, like Los Lobos and and uh, Violent Femmes and people like that, yeah, all, you know, were were beneficiaries of, of our bus, bus, busting the door in with our heads. Yeah. Right. Who, produ- who produced your first record, your first album? Uh, we did. You got, you did okay. All right. Oh, uh, this is something that comes up. Uh, Renee and I have talked about this, and you talk about the uh, uh, the plugs and Los Lobos. And um, did you ever feel back then because everyone was getting signed and stuff and putting out records? But to me, there was always a, a few bands like the Plugs, who just you'd see them live and you'd say, "Man, these guys are fucking amazing." And then they put their record out, and it's just like. I don't hear it. I can't, I don't get it. I, I, I don't hear it. I don't hear, I don't hear them anymore. It didn't translate, man. Is that what you're yeah, saying? it didn't translate. Yeah, you know. Uh, uh, like Fishbone was one of those bands. Fishbone was one of those bands who I loved, you know, going to see them all the time. And then when they, I go by their record, I go, man, this, this just doesn't watch. It's hard. It's hard, especially when you're a bar band. Yeah. You're playing in clubs. And you, especially when you're young and you don't have a, like, you know, the Beatles had George Martin who explained to them that your bar gig is one thing and your records are another. And uh, we, we had, the Blasters had troubles, particularly on our second album for Slash Warners. We had trouble. We produced ourselves and it was, it was terrible. You know, not, not the songs or the performances, but it just didn't cut it, you know, because... Uh, it's a long story I won't get into, but it, it's true with a lot of bands. Like, you know, the plugs made some good records, this and the other, but there was also a, there was this thing against high end Sonics in those days. Hmm. Um, that if you had high end Sonics, that was not punk rock. And so that's why the X records on slash. And then even the ones on Electra afterwards for a long time did not have high end Sonics on them. You know, um, okay. and they're, they're, those are great albums, but are they sonically great? No, they're not. So you, you were up against, you didn't want to look like you were selling out. But then I'll tell you what, what completely changed my mind was the the, the album Fear did on Slash. Um, because their first, their first record? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and that first album came screaming off the turntable, <laughs> you know, just screaming. And it was like, I, I was, I listened to it again and again, one, because I liked fear, but also more than anything, it was like how I, these guys do not sound like this live, you know, right. but it sounds like them live. Wow. I, I that, that's a, that's a really good example. Yeah. Cause that record really, yeah, you, exactly what you said. It sounds like them live, but it's not them live. It's them on vinyl, and it really it cut. Yeah, it, that that was a that was a sonically like for me that was the punk rock record that said, uh, "Hey, you know we can make you know uh, professional sounding loud records, you know," and uh, and I think that you know things started to change around then. Also, you know, were were sort of the faux punk ethos. You know, there's there's real punk ethos and it's faux punk. And uh, and the foes started fading for a lot of the artists, you know. I mean, it, it, you look at the Go Go's. The Go Go's had been a had been a punk band, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then they went and worked in New York. They made their first album with Richard Goddard in New York City and came out with this slick product. And the next thing you know, they're they're got mansions. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and they just got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, you know, all good, all good for Belinda and Jane and everybody. That's yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, they to be honest, you know, they couldn't play that well. You know, Gina Shock, the drummer, was great, and all that. Kathy Valentine, who later you know replaced, uh, um, oh God, named this uh, Margot Gogo, who was a bass player, and and Kathy replaced her. Kathy could certainly play, but mm-hmm. in general, you know, they weren't. They weren't Jeff Beck, you know. Right. right. <laughs> and then again, they didn't have uh, uh, audiences of guys in in uh, army jackets with no girlfriend. So no, but I tell you what, we did a bunch of gigs because our drummer Bill Bateman, for all through that Beauty and the Beat period, he was uh, Belinda Carlisle's boyfriend. Okay. And so we did a lot of gigs opening for the Go Go's. You know, yeah. after, they, after they, you know, after they became the Go Go's. Sure. And man. I never seen so many polka dot dresses in my life. You think? <laughs> yeah, you had a bunch of polka dot dresses staring at you, and the pedal, the steel pedal, right? Uh, the pedal steel, <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, there no, trust me, there were no troubled loners, male loners <laughs> anyway. Go go shows. Well, uh, yeah, try to try to keep them out in the parking lot anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, you know, it, it was, uh, you know. Once everybody started getting record deals and started learning, you know, how to make records, you know, because it was it was all a learning experience for for all of us, you know. But everybody was so young, you know. Yeah. And we were cocky, you know, and cocksure, you know, right. and, and, and um, you know, so you know, we had to learn the hard way in many respects, you know. Right. Going back to fear for a second, yeah. uh, in in that movie, a decline of Western civilization, and going back to A and R people. Uh, Lee Ving has that great line where he says, "If you're an A and I person, an A and R person, go die." Yeah, die. <laughs> he's, got that, he's got that great line in that yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah, he's got that great Philly accent. That thing, right? And did you know? I saw someone sent me. God, this was maybe ten years ago or something. Someone sent me uh, Lee Ving back in the late seventies was on one of those like shows like compared like America's Got Talent, you know, like that. It was a 70s show. It was like Star Search. Remember Star Search? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Lee Ving was on there wearing a suit and tie, and he sang um, MacArthur Park. <laughs> well, he had a great he he has. I mean, Lee's still with us. Uh, you know, he he had a wide he had a big range. You know, his- yeah, he did. He, I mean, he was amazing, and, and I think he ate up punk rock because to me, he was he had some country bands too, didn't he? Well, he had one for a while. He was trying to pose as a country guy, and he had a he had a, a band called Range War, which is right. That was it. Yeah, Range War. Yeah. And what about? Did you ever uh, spend any time with El Duce? Oh yeah. <laughs> that must have been that. That's all you have to say about that. Is yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess we can leave that where the, where that lies. Um, <laughs> Well, so so Dave, so you know, you, you have this this uh, this rise of the blasters, and and we were kind of talking off air. You know, we, we I just reread your uh, your chapter in the second John Doe book, uh, more fun in the, in the new world, which I think actually this month was uh, uh, came out in paperback, and uh, it's a it's a a masterwork where where John Doe gets uh, all of his friends to write his book for him. And, exactly, <laughs> and, and and you chipped in, and and I, I love your chapter. It it, it perfectly encapsulates, uh, you know, the 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 arc of the blasters. Um, but it's it's an iconic story of, uh, you know, young kids uh, uh, full of bluster and cocksure, like you're saying, you know. And then as you get success, the the uh, the pressures rise, pressures on you as a songwriter, pressure to you know produce uh, you know records that sell more and more copies, and and it at some point it it at at the end of of your chapter you said while well, I was on stage and we played some great shows we had a you know a record that was doing well we had played some great shows some transcendent shows some bad shows but at some point it it just wasn't fun anymore. Well, um, you know, again, the Blasters were a band of guys that grew up together in Downey, California. You know, we were a hometown band. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and so people talk about the Alvin Brothers fighting. Well, it wasn't just the Alvin Brothers. It was all five of us. Yeah. You know, uh, going at it. And, um, and that gets, you know, and when you're young, uh, when you're a young band, you know, like we did a tour op- very early in our career opening for Queen. And, uh, and oh God, we, really? <laughs> we could have 17,000 at some of these gigs, 17,000 queen fans booing us and throwing beer bottles and cherry bombs. <laughs> but that made you into a, that either was going to break you up or make you strong. And it made us strong. Um, and it's just heightened our resolve of like, you know, Hey, you know, and our attitude was, Hey, the guys in queen like us. So they're paying us to be here. You're paying to be you though who are throwing things and booing. You're paying to be here while we're getting paid to be here. You know, right. we're, we're getting paid to play you know old rhythm and blues while you're you're paying to listen to it. You know, so who's cooler? And sure. and and that molded us into a tight unit. But then, yeah, a few years later, you know, you go through all the. Um, yeah, all the various BS of record labels and, and uh, booking agencies and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, you know, the, you know, when you're a young band and especially a hometown band, you fought all the time from the beginning, but it was always with giggles, you know, right. Right. And love. And then it became, you know, fighting because you hated somebody, 
Mm. You loved them, but you hated them. Right that minute, you hated them more than anything. And so it just wasn't fun, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, I left, you know, which, you know, there's times I regret leaving, you know, but overall, no, I don't regret it at all. Sure. And, and, you know, you go on to have a tremendous solo career. You play an X. I actually saw you playing, uh, in X, uh, at, on the riverboat president here in new Orleans, uh, you know, and Oh, it's a, wow. It's a terrific show. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, but wow. you know, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was wild. Uh, you know, so you have this great career, you know, we're, we're kind of getting towards the end of, of, of the podcast, but you know, I, I we have a couple of connections that I haven't explored yet. You mentioned it uh, briefly that, uh, you know, the iguanas and, and, and Dave Alvin, you know, my band, the iguanas. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure how, how Rod Hodges, our guitar player first met uh, uh, Chris Gaffney, um, one of your, uh, the, the great Chris Gaffney. But I, I remember when, when Rod first approached you and realized that you were actually aware of us and, and y'all, you and Rod became friends and you actually wound up, uh, you know, uh, co-writing the song, uh, plastic silver, nine volt heart. Yeah. One of our, our most popular numbers. And, and, but then we, 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 uh, developed a close, uh, relationship with, with Chris Gaffney as well. And he sang all over our third record and a lot on our fourth record. And, and, uh, you know, Chris was a, a tremendous songwriter and, and singer. Um, uh, incredible singer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so y- you and Chris grew up together, huh? So uh, we f- it felt like we did. Yeah. We didn't meet until 19, uh, about 1982. Okay. His girlfriend at the time brought him to a blaster show and said, Hey, Chris, maybe these guys could use one or two of your songs. And he saw our show and then he turned to his girlfriend and said, I think they got it covered. (laughs) (laughs) He came, he came backstage or she brought him backstage and we met then and, uh, and, you know, had a nice chat, but then we got to be friends instantly in, in 1986. He was playing a a club called Raji's in in Hollywood. Oh yeah. Sure. And, um, I went down there at a, you know, free night. So I went down there and, and I, I had heard of this guy and he was playing, you know, everything from Ray Charles to Doug Somm to, uh, you know, Jerry Butler, you know, and I was just like right. shouting out the requests, you know, and then he walked off the stage and walked right to me. And, uh, and that was, you know, from then on, yeah, but we'd grown up in the same area. Okay. And so because of that, we had all these mutual friends that we didn't know that we had. And, uh, so then it was just like, oh, well. Uh, hell, I've known you since high school, you know, even though we just met. And right. Because, yeah, we really, I mean, we had mutual high school friends, you know, like. Right. You had, grew, you had the same same bunch of, bunch of uh, touch points uh, in common. Yeah. You know, and um, and so Chris and I, yeah, Chris became, is you know, pretty quickly became my other brother. You know, wow. all the other blasters were my, are my brothers, you know, and Chris is my brother, you know, and um you know, we, he, he was my old, you know, he's my bodyguard. He was my spiritual advisor, you know, uh, and vice versa. You know, we, we helped each other out in that way. You know, we'd buck each other up, you know, you know, Chris would always adopt this, you know, European accent. And I would, you know, I'd be bumming about getting, I'd be nervous about getting 
going up on stage and I'd be like, are these people going to understand what I'm doing? Are they going to get it? You know, and Chris would just go calmly and coolly. He'd go, David, just go there and do what you do. <laughs> he always calm me down. He's like, hey, Chris, all right, man. So, so now that things are opening up, you, you're playing again? No, I probably won't be playing until uh, next year sometime. Oh, okay. No, I'm working on, uh, I'm working on, uh, I'm not supposed to be saying what I'm working on. Okay. You're working on uh, a porno soundtrack, right? Uh, well, <laughs> we're, we're working on that together, Manny, but again, you're not supposed to talk about that. Don't spill uh, the beans, Mr. Chevrolet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, so, but, but Dave, you did have a, uh, a terrific record that you put out, uh, just at, at the end of last year which was a kind of a, a compilation of, of, of all these, these recordings that you'd, that you'd done over the years uh, 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 from an old guitar. Yeah, yeah. And a beautiful record, man, and it has many of these people, Chris Gaffney's on it, uh, uh, you know, Amy Ferris, another uh, tremendous talent that, that, you know, is no longer with us. Yeah, Bobby Lloyd Hicks, and now, sadly, the great drummer Don Heffington passed away, so two of my closest drummers you know bobby lord hicks and don heffington are both gone and right. they're, they're on the record and dale spaulding another uh another uh you know touch point between the iguanas and 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 you is uh, yeah he... dale spaulding from down in california yeah it was it's it's great dale when i we cut a we cut a version of an earl hooker song called earl's rumba and i called it variations on earl's rumba and, right and it was dale just happened to be in la and he called me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to the recording studio. Care to join me? And he said, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was great to have a, a track with, uh, you know, to play a track with Gaffney and Dale Spaulding, you know. It was, yeah. so, there's a lot, you know, some of my favorite recorded things are actually on this record. And they just didn't fit on other records of mine um, for one reason or another. And, and so it was, it was great to finally put them together and say, you know, this is, you know, this is what I love to do for fun. You know, I mean, I like, I, I I'm a good songwriter. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm egotistical about that. I, I can write a song and yep. I'll stack some of the, my best against just about anybody else's. But you know, what I love to do is make noise. I love to play music. Um, and so these, this record, the, from an old guitar, you know, along with my other records, but this one's particularly is, this is me. You know, I'd have a day off and I go in the recording studio and make music you know and one day it would be you know day or two of blue stuff i go on another day and record a country rock number or go and record something folky or some old 20s jazz it was just whatever i felt like you know and i didn't have to worry about it fitting on a record oh is this going to work on a record you right. know kind of thing and uh yeah i just i love playing music and and you know the record i put out right before that it was a record called the third mind right that I did with uh, uh for lack of a better term it's psychedelic you know live in the studio no rehearsal no arrangements uh record that i did with victor krumenacher and uh, michael jerome from richard thompson's band and, uh -huh. and uh and and david Immergluck from uh uh, John Hyatt he used to be with John Hyatt. Now he's with the Counting Crows and 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 a great singer named Jesse Sykes. And yeah, we just did something I always wanted to do and just go in, no rehearsals, no arrangements. We're all competent on our instruments, and let's see what happens. So yeah, I like to play music. I like to make noise, and that's what I plan to continue doing. You know, 
Nice, nice, man. Yeah, and I love that that uh, the third mind record, man. It's, it's so cool. No thanks. Well, you know, I, I gotta I gotta mention one more thing because I, I like to make these connections. And you know, we had Steve Berlin on on the show earlier this this year. Yeah. And and Steve tells a story, told a story on the podcast about working in the music store. And uh, I guess you had seen him playing with uh, Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs or, or, or somewhere. And and you called him up at the record store and asked him if he could play Barry. And he lied and said, yes, he, he played Barry. <laughs> and, and he said, I just happened to have a Barry right there in the, in the store that was like the perfect horn for me, <laughs> the perfect mouthpiece for me. And he said, I wound up using that for many years. He said, if it had been something else, it wouldn't have worked out as well. But he said, <laughs> Steve said, that phone call changed my life. <laughs> He's never told me that story. That's great. He money, dad, damn it. <laughs> yeah, he said it changed the trajectory of my life. And everything else opened up from that phone call. So Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd seen him playing with Fast Freddy and the Precisions. Okay, and, right, right. And uh yeah, he you know Steve produced my first solo album and yeah, and Steve was a member for a while of the Blasters. And I'll never forget when he left the Blasters to join Los Lobos. Um because on the Blasters he's playing baritone behind Lee Allen's tenor. And he would get one solo a night, you know. And uh, and so I remember one of the guys in the band was really pissed that Steve was leaving. And I just said, really? You're, you're mad at the guy joining a band where he's going to get to play five, six solos a night? And you're <laughs> mad for leaving a band where he leaves one on an instrument that's not his, you know? Right. Right. And then everything got, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It all, it all worked out. Yeah. Well, man, uh, what what a fantastic guest you've been, Dave. Um, uh, fun. Yeah, listen, Dave. Uh, yes, sir. We got, we've got to get ready to, you know, we're getting towards the end of the show, but I always like to ask our guests a, a question, and, and and this is like, would you rather this or rather this? Yes, sir. Okay, okay. so would you rather always eat standing up or have to get in your car from the passenger side. <laughs> you had to choose one or the other. Always get in the car from the passenger side? Or always eat standing up. What would it be? Yeah, you can only choose one. Well, having done both, <laughs> it really depends on what kind of car and what am I eating. Okay, <laughs> I like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very good. Now, to me, I, I could eat standing up no matter what. I've done it. You know, a lot of times, you know, uh, so I would probably choose always having to eat standing up. Renee, what about you? Yeah, I'm going to go eat standing up because I'm kind of nervous. I like to pace anyway. So uh, <laughs> that's fine with me. You know, when I go on the road, I, we, we stop and get uh, fast food. I usually uh, open the food up on top of the garbage can in the parking lot and, and use that as my standing up table. And I throw my stuff away into the garbage can as I get done. And, uh, yeah, so. there's so many questions, man. Who am I eating with? Who am I getting in the car with? <laughs> okay. Is there somebody in the driver's seat? You know, all those right. kind of questions arise, man. You know, is there a stick <laughs> shift? Is it, are there bucket seats? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of. Well, but, but what if it's a convertible? Okay. Well, I don't know. Well, man, then you got to get your hop on. You know, you got to yeah. get your hop. You know, you don't open the door; you hop over the door. But I'll say this: I would rather spend the rest of my life eating standing up in the passenger seat. 
That's what I would do. Okay. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Dave. You got it. Well, uh, yes, uh, and and again, like many guests, uh, you know, uh, we we've hardly touched, scratched the surf- surface of the the uh, Dave Alvin uh, saga. So there's plenty more to come. So we'd love to have you back sometime, Dave. I hope we haven't alienated you. I don't think we have. No, not at all. Nice. Well, so uh, Manny, uh, uh, you want to wrap this up? Uh, what do we say in the troubled nation? Uh, well, uh, trouble never ends, but the struggle continues. Good night. How many times have I washed my face, combed my hair, and then left this place? And felt the shiver in my chest when I hit the door, the promise of something worth living for. I had a fight with the woman that had my kids, can't get along with anyone, and what if I did? I'm going back to the corner where we used to meet when our dreams were young and the night was. I'm going out tonight, going way downtown Where my friends who died still hang around See what's shaking as the leaves turn brown Season's been and gone And another one's coming on And I'm on my way down Sun. I was walking down Union Street and started to run Down into a cellar with the music screamed I guess it hit me hotter than I'd ever dreamed In the Palace Theater later on that night There was miracles in store but not a soul inside Eight phone ringing didn't seem so strange Anything could happen, everything could change Drops of rain, you can smell the earth and the sky again. And hear the rattle of the leaves, the locust call underneath the elms by the schoolyard wall. Summer's over and the fields are tall and the season's been and gone.